Welcome to another episode of the Gospel Lifeline Podcast. My name is Neil Grogan. I'm a pastor at Christ Community Church in Harker Heights, Texas, next to Fort Hood. And I'm here with... Matthew Statler from Sierra Vista Baptist Church and next to Fort Huachuca. Yeah, so we're just a couple of uh, uh, veterans. Uh, Matt was in the Army. I was in the Marine Corps. And we did some things, became pastors along the way. And, and man, uh, part of our story is, man, we've dealt with a lot and endured a lot of different, you know, traumas and experiences and hardships and we came to the realization that, man, the gospel was sufficient to change us, change our hearts. The Holy Spirit did a work in us, and he did that through his word. And so what Matt and I are passionate about, and this is just like a little refresher intro who we are, what Matt and I are passionate about is helping others see how the Bible and how the gospel is our lifeline. It, it, it helps us no matter what position we're in in our life and regular things that we all deal with. Man, the Bible has an answer to and the extreme things that we deal with, the Bible has an a- uh, answer to. So this week, we're going to kind of continue down our road of why the Bible is re- reliable, why it's sufficient, why it has a power for us to change. And uh, so just to give a little refresher course Matt, what did we talk about last time we met? Yeah, we talked a lot about um, applying the gospel done through the Word and the Spirit, right? And why does this avenue change versus the other? And then we kind of ended on this idea of truth. What is truth? And then how does truth start to cause lasting change? Um, One of the things, I don't know if we really emphasize this, is that God reveals himself to us. He is a God who makes himself known, and the way he does it is through two primary means, and we we call this general revelation and special revelation or specific revelation. And so um, general revelation is just the fact that when you look out at this world and you see the complexity, you can say, man, this could not have been an accident. Um, A lot of apologists will use the analogy of walking by the ocean, looking down, finding a a pocket watch washed up on the shore. And then the atheist would say, oh, wow, look at this happy accident that happened and made this this thing while the tumbling in the ocean made that. Um, Versus the... um, the the theist would say oh wow look this thing was created this was designed for a specific purpose and so we can look at the earth and we can look at the complexity of life and we can say man something made this something created this but on the other side we know that what what do we know about this creator and we can't really know fully this creator or even partially this creator or even even a little bit of who the creator is without special revelation and that special revelation allows us to to know to have faith and to trust in the character of who this person is who this creator god is and that's why we trust or we begin to start the conversation on why do we trust the bible right so what you're saying so i'm gonna give a break this down barney style correct me if i'm wrong So what you're saying is that all of humanity should be able to look out at at what's around us, right? The world itself. We could observe with our eyes and know from that fact that there is a designer behind this great design. So that would be uh, general revelation, correct? 
100%. Yep. Okay. I think Romans then, 1 really pushes that idea. Absolutely. And we'd encourage you to uh, read Romans 1 and just to think about like how we can observe God in his hand in all things. And then second point and what you're saying, and, and this is what matters for change, right? Is um, that God specifically or in a special way reveals himself to us. And the way we understand that is through the word of God, the, the Holy scriptures, the Bible, he has specially or specifically told us about himself within the word. Right. And so if we want to know the design of the pocket watch, right. This is where this is where the uh, the manufacturer, you know, uh, what's what's the word? The you know, the thing my dad reads uh, uh, manuals, manuals. <laughs> you know? yeah, like mechanics manuals and stuff like, uh, man, we had a, uh, you know, our transmission went out on our van, uh, you know, several weeks ago. And uh, I was like, oh, no, you know, like and so. One of the things I bought was this Haynes manual, which gives me like the the specs and like each step and taking this thing apart and trying to put it back together again. Now, hoping for, you know, the providence of God (laughs) in this to where I won't have to do all this work, but I'm preparing to have to do all this work. So I have to read the instructions and figure out you know, how this van is supposed to tick the most efficient and best way possible. So uh, in that same kind of respect, you know, is the scripture, God reveals himself to us and and, and shows us who he is, what he desires for us, how he desires us to relate with him and to relate with one another. And this matters, right? This matters in a, in a massive way because, um, the presupposition that we're going to work from is that we are sinful and that we are totally depraved. And so because of this, something supernatural has to occur, right? Yeah. Uh, to change a depraved heart or the Bible say to make a dead man come to life or dead woman come to life. Right. So all of that to say is that regeneration is required, which we talked about that work of the spirit. Right. So this week, Matt, we're going to kind of talk about how the Bible is reliable. Like, why is it trustworthy? Uh, what what kind of, what is the majority type of literature it's presenting to us? How do we deal with this, you know? And then uh, and then maybe we'll we'll talk about like how it's sufficient for a little right, bit. And then, right. and, and then next week, listeners, we're going to go in deeper on that sufficiency level there. Um, so Matt, man, let's, let's kick it. What, what and I didn't we're not prepped for this in this way, but hopefully you've studied in the past. But uh why can't we trust the Bible? What's give me like a two, three sentence defense. Why can we trust the Bible? You know, um that's a hard way to start, right? Why can we trust the Bible? Um but instead of directly answering you, how about we start with Wait a second, what, what, did did you just trump me? I did. I did trust you. I'm not going to ask the question. I'm going to. I'm not going to answer it. I'm going to revert here. Um, but I think what we want to emphasize to start with is what is the Bible, right? So, in order to to find out if we can trust it, I mean, obviously we know that this is God's word spoken to us, written down, inspired, um, inerrant. We 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 have all these 
words that we qualifiers we put on it. But ultimately, the Bible is a story of God's relation to mankind and how he wants us to operate. Right. We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. Um, and it comes to us really in the form of a story, more of a, a grand narrative of God working with us. And when we look at it that way, we can start to begin to um, understand it a little bit, I think, a little bit more clearly than if we look at it as a science manual or some form of uh, technical manual with you know charts and graphs. Um but the reality is that it's more of a grand narrative and then um, yeah, it's, not a, it's not about you, right? It's not about me, right? Absolutely. And, and we can see what is required of us as we study this grand narrative absolutely. and what God requires of mankind and the promises and the warnings, right? One of the, the passages we've been working through is Joshua. And I mean, that, that whole section is about, do you trust the word of God? God says to do these this way, and then um, we see the Israelites try to do things on their own power and their own strength, and they collapse and they fall. But when they put their reliance on the Word of God and what God said, they're successful. And that's kind of a mini-narrative of what we see in all of Scripture. Right. So I, I know I didn't answer why uh, is the Bible reliable, but I think we need to understand what the Bible is as that special revelation of God for us. Um, and I think Kevin DeYoung wrote a phenomenal book on the trustworthiness of the Bible. Um, and I yeah. used to carry around little three by five cards that I would refresh, right? So, Neil, how about you answer why is the Bible reliable? <laughs> Man, the the ultimate Trump. Uh, hey, that brings a whole new definition of Trump cards, right? Yeah, yeah it sure does. <laughs> yeah, I Double mean, entendre. I, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, to your point, you're absolutely right, man. Um, it the Bible reveals to us what we need to know about God, how to relate to Him, and what we need to know about ourselves, and uh, what's what's wrong in the question, right? And then the Bible provides that answer. So. The reliability um, comes in several forms. I think, uh, number one, what type of literature we, we need to understand? What kind of literature is it actually kind of presenting to us? Because that that alone is going to help us understand how we are to test its trustworthiness. Right. And so we, we need to understand that, man, the Christian, the Christian, the Christian faith, the Christian Bible is a is a historical record. It's things that have happened in the past and throughout history, it's marking like this is how God created, right? This is what God did with his people in Egypt. This is uh, what God did with his people as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then give them a promised land, you know, that he promised back in Genesis 15. This is what God has now done and uh, with the king, you know, and then with the prophets, calling the people to repentance and faith again and again and again, repeat, repeat, repeat. Right. And then it's dead silent. And then, Hey, God became, God put on flesh and, and walked among us. And then what is the historical record for that? And we get that in the gospels. And then we have this, this horrible death of the God man, right? Uh, Jesus Christ. 
And then we have a record of his death, a record of his resurrection. He walked around for 40 days with the disciples. What happened in that time? And then as he ascended to heaven, who all saw it? So the Bible says, hey, you know, there's like 500 people who saw this whole thing, um, including the disciples and and his apostles and how they died. You know, we get we get things like uh, what happened in the in the church is a historical record, how the church expanded, how the gospel of Jesus Christ went out into the world, uh, the Roman world. Right. And then we have kind of some some future eschatological you know, uh, pictures of what God is not, not yet done what he will do. And so, um, that all of that to say that is a, is a, um, canon of historical records, right? Majority wise. And so when we come to understanding what historical records are, we have to ask a few questions, right? Is this, is this a reliable set of documents, right? Um, was it written by eyewitnesses? Was it written by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses? You know, it, are, is it speaking about, you know, cooperative events? Like when the eyewitnesses are giving accounts, are they, is it corroborating with these other eyewitnesses giving account? Is it pointing to the same story, the same thread, right? Which is like what you were saying. It's got a singular focus, the whole Bible. And that is Jesus, right? And so are they all speaking to that throughout history? And they are, you know. Um, and then we can talk about like manuscripts and, and uh, you know, prophetic uh, language or prophecies that were fulfilled and, and many other things, right? So um, that's maybe the best way. And, and I would say, yes, we can, based on all of those things, and I think we're going to flesh them flush them out briefly, we can, based on all those things, trust that the Bible is reliable. We can have confidence in this. Right. And we're not, we're, (laughs) uh, despite what the new atheists would say, like Richard Dawkins and, and those fellows, you know, we're not a people with mental illness who have no intellectual capabilities. No, we are uh, standing on something that's very sure. And so when we look at historical works, we look at it in a specific way. We don't use things like scientific method or um, whatever other non Right, exactly. How do you evaluate a historical event and historic, you know, well, you use eyewitness writings and documentation. And we have ultimately um, a plethora, a cornucopia, because it's almost Thanksgiving for us, of Mm. information um, about these events that have happened. And of course we, we don't just look at the Bible as a historical document. We also consider it to be God breathed, right? Right. As, as it's, it's its own testimony to itself says that all scripture is God breathed. And so if it's breathed out by God, inspired by God, then he had the writers write what he would have them write. And he uses their unique personality, their unique voices, their unique um, situations, styles, styles in order to get the message that he wants to have across. Which is a great point, Matt, because that's that's a that's a huge objection that a lot of people make. It's like, man, that's just written by a bunch of people. 
right? So you're saying the Bible makes supernatural claims. Right, I do. All right, so what are some of those supernatural claims? What are the most important ones you can think of off the top of your head? Well, prophecy is probably the the most important because the Old Testament writers prophesied about a coming Messiah and very specifically, very unique ways. And then when Christ came, he fulfilled prophecy after prophecy that, and it's not like someone who um, like watched Back to the Future and then tried to create a Back to the Future in the modern time. Right. It's more of these are like impossible things that happened, right? He was born in a certain location, right? He right. died a certain way. Like all these things are, are beyond Jesus's control. So there was supernatural movement in it. Um, yeah, so, so you're speaking towards messianic prophecies, right? Correct. Yes. So, so when we think about something like for folks who don't know the Bible very well, like the crucifixion itself. Man, there's this prophecy given in Psalm 22 that lays right. out the very way that Jesus would in the future die. And uh, I mean, it, and even the language, like the way they call Gentiles is dogs. mentioned in the Psalms. And there <laughs> yeah. were, they didn't have a clue who the Romans were when the Psalms yeah. were written. Right. So so we see this over and over and over again. Um, Let me give one know, more to that. Yeah, absolutely. What? Was crucifixion even in existence at the time that song no, was written? No, it wasn't. Right. It was the Romans had perfected it to mm-hmm. a to a cruel art, and so we we see that now. Um, but that's I think that's one of the major ways that right. we can attest to it, right? And, and we know that the prophets in the Old Testament, um, if they prophesied something and it didn't come true, most often they were stoned, right? right. They were killed. Um, and, and, and I know there's a number out there about how many unique prophecies were fulfilled in in Christ's life, death and resurrection. Um, but needless to say, so we, we see that what has been written has proved to be true in Christ. Um, but we also see that in all the other parts of the writings, um, Mm. as a historical reflection of what happened, um, we see that to be true. We, we see the, the evidence piling up through archaeological finds and through all the historical methods of, of discovering history. Um, and then, of course, we have the, the writings on it. Yeah, and I would say, and most importantly, uh, in my mind, okay, is what does Jesus say about the Old Testament? And, you know, this morning I was reading... Um, I believe it's Luke 24, the road to Emmaus account. Yeah. Christ has already died, rose again, right? And he comes to Peter and a couple of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they didn't know it was Christ because he had not, you know, he had, uh, we call it incognito mode on, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, man, they're having this conversation and they're telling them like, man, Jesus died. You know, this whole thing's happened. And, and then, Man, Jesus just goes in and he be, it says that he began to explain to them all the Old Testament scriptures speaking about him. Yeah. And man, that's just such a, a beautiful picture to me of Christ saying, man, it was all about me. And guess what? I fulfilled all that it said about me, you know, and it's not done yet. I'm about to go to the right hand of the father. Right. 
And how did he treat Scripture in his life, right? During his lifetime, uh, he mentions Jonah, and right. he talks about the three days, right? And, and he doesn't say, hey, there's a story about this thing that may be true or not, but I want to tell you. No, he, he treats it as authoritative, as real, and he constantly goes back to the Pharisees and says, have you not read? God's Word says this. When he um, was tempted by Satan in the desert, his response was once again using scripture from the Old Testament, and he treated it as completely reliable, authoritative in the life of the human being. So if the God-man treats the God's word as authoritative for all of life, then we should do the same thing. I don't, I don't know why yeah. there's a, a conflict there. The, the living word <laughs> treats the written right. word and, and says it's sufficient, you know, as he's being tempted to your point in the wilderness. What does he use? He uses scripture. It's sufficient in that moment, you know, and uh, and how many other times does he do that throughout the Gospels? So, so often we, we see a, a conflict now, right? So we say, yeah, God's word is true. It's reliable. It's inspired. It's infallible. It's inerrant. All the cool words that we like to use when we describe the Bible. But so often now people are saying, well, do we have the manuscripts, right? Mm. Do we have the right ones? Um, how do we know that it was transmitted correctly in the written form? Um, that and also the canon and and why do we have the books of the Bible we have and not other books of the Bible that may have been around during that time? I didn't know if you wanted to field that, Neil. Yeah, um, I think when we're well, I don't think I know when we're talking about manuscripts, what we know about you know the New Testament is that in Greek alone we have fifty eight hundred copies consisting of two and a half million pages of texts. In addition to that, we have 10,000 Latin manuscript copies. And if that's not enough, we have 5,000 more manuscripts in other languages like Coptic, Syriac, Georgian, Gothic, Ethiopic, uh, and Armenian. (laughs) In total, okay, listener, there are more than 20,000 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament in various languages. So to top it all off, and, the, and, and I pulled some of this stuff from an article Crossway's done in the past, and so there's so much out there on this stuff, guys. I, I really encourage you to research this. But to top it all off, even if all manuscript evidence for the New Testament disappeared, we could still reconstruct almost the entire 27 New Testament books for more than... One million quotations of the early church fathers. Yeah. So we have more than any other written work in the history of the world. You know. Yeah. Homer's Odyssey doesn't even touch a sixteenth of this number, right? <laughs> and the and the stuff that we have of the Odyssey was written three hundred years after the event. After- Right. <laughs> or something like so, that. I think so yeah. So what most scholars agree with, you know, almost all scholars say that the epistles alone in the New Testament were written by Paul. And we know that Paul lived in the lifespan of who? Jesus. Christ. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, that is massive there. So he's writing letters and as as someone who walked around in that time. 
It was written down by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And so if there was a a contradiction or a problem, they would have written against it. There would have been evidence against it. And not only that, Neil, but we have discovered more manuscripts in the last 15, 20 years through our archaeological work in Egypt and through in Israel and all these other places. And we are then finding these manuscripts that had been written out or, or parts of, of the papyrus and stuff. And we take them and we compare them with what we have and they match up. Right. So it's been preserved. There's not been right. any changes or edits, you know, for all this time. So, right. I mean, just the, I, the preponderance of evidence, I guess, if you want to use fancy words are just right. is heavy. Right. Yeah. And then as to what you were saying or alluding to earlier about the canon, um, I, I hear this objection a lot. Well, the canon of scripture was just thrown together by groups of men. Um, what does the canon mean? Yeah. So the <laughs> the rule or the uh, ruler, right? The standard of works that we uh, call the Holy Scripture. So the canon in this way, we would say, is the Bible that we have, um, not including the Apocrypha. Okay, right. which the what the which is what the Catholics still affirm, and we don't affirm that because Jews don't affirm it. You know, also, <laughs> so that's helpful information. But so, okay, the Council of which Council was it? I can't remember. Nicaea, Chalcedon. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, one of them. Uh, Matt could probably Google that as I continue to talk. I'll Google it. Sweet. So at a council, right? They said, "Hey." <laughs> We we're going to bless this many books of the Bible. This is going to be the canon, right? And so many would say it's man man constructed, right? The standard has been put together by men. But there's something that we're not uh, including uh, in the works of the the uh, the works of the church father church fathers, and that is that there was a rule of faith that was followed long before uh, the canon was actually formalized. So meaning like they sat down and had like an official, you know, ceremony kind of thing. So, right. What I'm, and what and we know that these, these books were, especially the new Testament canon in particular. Um, we knew that the new Testament books had to have certain criteria in order to be included um, in this evaluation. And the reason was because a guy named Marcion was wandering around creating, cutting out books of Paul and adding things and taking away things that he didn't like. And finally the church got together and said, Hey, we got to have a meeting and we need to discuss what, you know, what do we consider to be authoritative in our lives? And they had some criteria and it had to be um, written by an apostle. It had to have, so, you know, apostolic, authority or association it had to um be in common usage with the churches the local churches and once they sat down to um just to to kind of compile what they had um they they examined it and they said okay these are what are authoritative and i think a lot of times they threw the apocrypha in there because of the historical significance of the in-between time between the old testament and the new testament and it's sure. useful to understand kind of what led up to it. Like um, the Maccabean some, revolution, right? Exactly. Um, for some reason, Google is failing me. 
Oh, it's all right. But I will say that, you know, as early as 180 AD, we hear uh, conversations happening about the rule of faith, which is long before this council ever met or met. And that was in Arrhenius's works uh, against heresies as he's battling Gnostics at the time. And he said he's appealing to the rule of faith, this this canon that everyone understood was right and true and uh, and was measured by the things that Matt just said, you know, that um, what was the story about? Who was it written by? All of those uh, considerations. And so, you know, that's some information on the canon. I think that's really helpful. But what does God's word actually say about itself? I think uh, uh, Psalm 119 is a greatest expression about God's word. It's an entire poem about the word of God. It's written in an acrostic um, and it is the longest chapter in the Bible. And with swing after swing after swing, it's talking about God's word. And Kevin D. Young's yeah. book, um, Taking God at His Word, he really points out that here's here's three things that God's word says about itself. Number one, it says that it's true. Um, like the psalmist, we can trust in the word, like in Psalm 119, 42, knowing that it is altogether true. We see that in verse 142. We can't trust everything we read, of course, on the internet or on Facebook. I mean, look at these election numbers, right? It's wild. Um, And we can't trust everything we hear from our professors. And we can't certainly trust all the facts given to us by politicians. And we can't even trust fact checkers who check those facts, right? Statistics can always be manipulated. Photographs can be faked. Magazine covers can be airbrushed. Our teachers, our friends, our science, our studies, even our eyes deceive us. But DeYoung says the word of God is entirely true and always true. It says in verse 89 that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens, meaning it doesn't change. It's immutable. Um, We see in verse 96 that there is no limit to its perfection. It contains nothing. Y'all, it contains nothing that's corrupt. In verse 160, all God's righteous rules endure forever. They never get old. They never get tired. They never wear out. Even though we're in the 21st century, it's still relevant for now, right? The second thing that um, God's word uh, says about itself is that it demands what is right. The psalmist Mm -hmm. in 119.75 says, Oh Lord, that your rules are righteous. I know that your rules are righteous. Um, that in verse 86, all the command, all of God's commandments are sure. All of his precepts are right in verse 128. Um, we should love what God loves and delight in whatever he says. And he says that God's word is right. And so we should delight in its righteousness, right? And then lastly and thirdly is that God's word provides what is good. So according to Psalm 119, The word of God is the way of happiness in verses 1 and 2. It's the way to avoid shame in verse 6, the way of safety in verse 9, and the way of good counsel in verse 24. It gives us strength in verse 25. It gives us our hope in verse 43. It provides wisdom, 98 through 100 and 130, and shows us the way we should go, verse 105. God's 
verbal revelation or like Matt said early earlier special or specific revelation uh, whether in spoken form in redemptive history or in the covenantal documents of re- redemptive history i.e the bible it is unfailingly perfect and as the people of god we believe the word of god can be trusted in every way to speak what is true command what is right and provide us with what is good and so that's a that's a great kind of uh synopsis of what god's word says about itself so is it sufficient and and on a on a really personal level yeah, um, sure. I was going through a real difficult time with some conflict within my family, uh, my my more extended family. Uh, maybe a be- I think it was about worldview, politics, and stuff. And I was getting really treated pretty nastily. Um, just some real, just mean things. Right? People were saying mean things, and and that's what happens. Um, but I was feeling kind of down about it because I was trying to be. And, and this was early on in my my you know pastoral life. I was you know I was in seminary and. Um, I was just feeling pretty hurt and because and I was trying to be godly and honoring. I didn't want to lash out. And so I turned to Psalm 119 and I was reading over it. And, and this just gave me life and gave me comfort. Um, Psalm 49 or Psalm 119 verse 49 says, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promises give me life. And I'm telling you. I just meditated and cried over and studied this text over and over and over again. And God just encouraged me and comforted me in a very difficult time um, and a stressful time in my life, not just because of the the argument type stuff, but it was more, sure. it was, there was more stuff going on. Um, but, but God's word just spoke to me um, and, and encouraged me through the promises of his word being true and just giving me comfort. So if you are struggling and, you know, and, and and having some form of suffering or affliction in your life, turn to Psalm 119 and just soak in it. I mean, read it, meditate on it, spend some time with it. Um, and next time we're going to talk about sufficiency right. and how God's word is sufficient for our suffering, suffering and afflictions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was just on a personal note. Psalm 119 um, was just wonderful for my heart. Yeah. And I would say, Matt, you know, all all of us, right, we're in good company. When we think of the saints of old, you know, the Martin Luthers, the Charles Spurgeons, the 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 Zwingli's, you know, uh, the apostles themselves, man, they all dealt with tremendous uh, affliction, uh, sorrow, depression, angst, anger, you name it. If it's an emotion, they dealt with it, right? Just as we do. <laughs> I sum it up as this is a a text written by sufferers for sufferers. Absolutely. That's what I like to share with folks. Yeah, right. And I think, uh, I mean, for us, well, we would say Psalm 119.9 is how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? So if you're thinking about how right. do I... How do I walk in righteousness right now in this election season with yes. with all of the the Thanksgiving? The table's going to be nuts, right? Families disagree. How do I remain righteous in the church as as I hear things that I don't agree with or or whatever? You know, man, measure Man. it here. Measure it according 
to God's word. Guard it by the truth, right? And we talked about that. Psalm 119 challenge right there. Yeah, Psalm 119 challenge, you know. And uh, like Matt said, next time we're going to talk about the sufficiency of scripture. So we're going to really flush that out. Maybe we'll give some historical examples from some people's lives as well. Because I'm a church history buff. I nerd out. So anyway, guys, we really appreciate y'all listening in and uh, man, taking a look at the reliability of God's word with us. And so I think with confidence, you can say, yes, it's trustworthy. Yes, I can stand on this. And no, I'm not a fool for believing in it. And so, man, that that is that is enough for this podcast episode. If we helped you with that at all, if not, well, yeah, please like subscribe, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Give us some topics that you want us to talk about. Um, we're recording these in advance so that we can drop them in a good time. Um, right. and I hope that they're helpful to you. If you have any, any concerns, comments and need help, let us know. Yeah. And as the, the kids would say, smash that like button, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, that's been another episode of the Gospel Lifeline podcast. Thanks for listening. Bye.